Well, here we are. <laughs> we have come to the chapter in this book that has made everybody nervous for 3,000 years, and I stand before you and say it is no different for me this morning. Uh, I've never been this nervous uh, to give a message uh, while I've been here. Uh, let me just say uh, right off the top that really the title for this message should actually be Intimacy. Uh, because sex is so much more than just like an event, and the world has made it into something that we don't even know what it means anymore. But I called it sex so that more men would come to church today. <laughs> and apparently it worked, because I've never seen this place uh, this packed. So, before we get into the text, I am going to share a story. Really, it's a parable that Tommy Nelson gives when he gives this message, which I heard years ago. And again, I've tried to be as upfront about this as possible. Uh, I am standing here because of the impact of Tommy Nelson on my life in this series, and so I want to give that credit. But he always starts his message, at least from what I've heard. Uh, he tells of a guy who goes to eat. He comes to a new town, and he goes to eat dinner at this Riverside restaurant. And he comes to this restaurant, and he can't believe his luck because the place is packed, but he is brought to, like, the best table right next to the river. He just can't believe it. I mean, the views are tremendous. He sits down, he starts looking at his menu, and all of a sudden, out of the water, a crocodile grabs his leg. And it starts trying to pull him into the water. And he is screaming. He's yelling for help. He's looking around at everybody else at the restaurant, and none of them are even acknowledging what is happening. Finally, he grabs hold of his table, and he's able to pull himself free, but by doing so, he has a chunk of his leg ripped out from him. And he's like, hello, did you guys not just see what happened? And finally, the people acknowledge him and say, yeah, we saw it. It's just not polite to talk about crocodiles in our society. <laughs> and he looks a little deeper, and he notices that everybody sitting at these tables has a little body part missing from them. But because it's not polite to talk about crocodiles in their society, nobody ever does. Do you see the connection? Sex. I said it in the church. For so long, we haven't talked about it because it's not considered proper. But the result is it has left a whole lot of people hurting and a whole lot of people missing body parts. And I'm sure many of you in this room, I mean in a room this size, have been hurt deeply by this. The fact is, we haven't talked about sex, but many people in our culture have, yes? I mean, just like that video showed, it's everywhere, and it's led to a lot of confusion today. I mean, think about it. Sex is used to sell everything from copy machines to cars. You can't turn on the TV without being bombarded. You can't drive down the street without being, without being bombarded. And in our society, we have elevated it to a place of worship. It is an idol in this country. And the problem is we have allowed our society to define it. But let me just ask you something. Don't you think the creator of the universe, the one who created us, male and female, in the first place, has something to say about this? After all, just like that video said, sex was his idea. It's time as a church that we... Look at this issue from God's view because we just can't afford any more missing body parts, especially in the body of Christ. Amen? So let me just say, this is an important day, whether you're single or married. Singles, I hope you take good notes. Because if you are seeking to one day get married, and I know not all singles are, which is great, 
That's a great gift. But if you are, this is a very important issue to talk about, to address with your fiancé before that day comes. If you're married, obviously this applies to you immediately. Other than money, sex is the number one issue that leads to conflict and divorce in most marriages. And by the way, speaking about uh, divorce here, last week I shared, you know, that the, the 50% of uh, Christian marriages are divorcing. Somebody sent me this great article last week that shows that's actually a myth. That, that, was, a, that was a survey done years ago that used this faulty information for Christians, for real, you know, strong Christians who are giving their lives to Christ, the, lower is much, the number is much lower. So praise God for that, right? I mean, that's why God's given us his word. So I'm glad for the person uh, who sent me that. But as a recap, we are in a series called Song of Solomon. It is a book in the Old Testament. So if you're offended by this book, don't blame me, blame God. And we have looked at this couple uh, with Solomon and his bride, and we've watched them go through their relationship together, and we are learning from their relationship about relationships today, right? And so we've seen them meet for the first time, be attracted to each other. We've seen them date. We've seen them court. And if you were here last week, we got to witness them getting married. And this morning, we're going to see this couple move from their wedding to what happens right after the wedding. Now, it's important to understand this book was written 3,000 years ago, so there are going to definitely be some cultural differences, right? You understand that, right? One of the differences is going is simply that when we get, somebody gets married today, what happens is you give your vows, and then you go to the reception, right? You have a, a party, you celebrate with everybody, and then after the reception, the couple leaves, and you throw bird seed and rice on them, and they get in their decorated car, and they head off to their honeymoon. In this culture, in, in, in the time Song of Solomon was written, what happens is after the couple gives their vows, the guests of the wedding go to a feast. And oftentimes this feast would last up to a week. I mean, that is like a big deal, a big party and celebration. In fact, you see Jesus in the Gospel of John at one of these wedding feasts. It's there that he does his first miracle. He turns the water into the wine, right? It's there, they're celebrating. However... The wedding couple that just gave their vows, they don't go to the feast yet, and it's not because they're taking pictures. (laughs) They would go off. If you were here last week, do you remember the very end when they get married? Solomon built that sedan chair. That's how the couple would leave. It was a symbol of the man's love for his spouse. They would leave in the sedan chair, and they would go to this thing called the bridal chamber, which was actually located very near to where the wedding took place. And it is in the bridal chamber that they would consummate. I know we don't use that word very much anymore, but it's where they would seal the covenant, the vows they made with each other with sex. Then... After that, they would come to the wedding feast, and all the guys' buddies would be like, yeah, you the man, and all that stuff, right? I mean, that's, that's how it worked in their culture. Well, our couple just got married at the end of chapter 3. They have left in the sedan chair, and they're starting, and starting in chapter 4, verse 1, which is where we are. They are now in the bridal chamber. Be prepared to squirm. Brian already warned you, I'll warn you one more time, okay? If you're not ready for this, you're not ready for this. But one of my favorite uh, stories, I've taught this three times now. The first time I taught it was about eight years ago to our young adult group. And you know, wouldn't you agree, what a great study uh, for the young adults to go through. But I remember we got to this week and not one of them made eye contact with me the entire time (laughs) I spoke. It was awesome. So if you don't want to make eye contact with me, I don't blame you right now. I'm not going to be offended if you're not making eye contact. 
So let's start by me saying this. Men, have you noticed something so far in these first three weeks? Have you noticed that in every section, who takes the lead? In attraction dating courtship, this man has led. Same is going to be true here today. Personally, I think one of the great myths in our culture today is that women don't like men who lead. Now, I've never heard a woman pray, Lord, send me a weak man. Send me a jellyfish of a man. The problem is, though, we don't know what leadership is anymore. And so leadership's been abused. It's been twisted. Uh, Nor have I ever heard a woman say, Lord, send me a bossy, demanding man. Right? We, We don't know what leadership is, and yet God's given us this example in this book of Solomon, and he's shown us what true godly leadership is, right? He is a man who leads out of sensitivity, a man who leads out of kindness and gentleness. His banner over her is love. That's leading. That's leadership. This man is a real leader, and he is going to take the lead here again. Interestingly enough, he's not going to touch her in a sexual way, at least, for a while. They're in the bridal chamber, and you know what he's going to do? He's going to talk to her. Why? Because as we're going to learn, a woman's most sensitive sexual organ is her mind. And this man knows that. So he starts with her mind. Let's start. Chapter 4, verse 1. You ready for this? How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful you are. Can't you just picture it? They've moved into the bridal chamber. They're standing there looking at one another. And he says, you're beautiful. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Sometimes, uh, still like today, certain, sometimes women wear veils at their weddings, right? That was a total thing they would do. They would wear veils at their weddings, and then they get to the bridal chamber, and what he's done here is he's lifted up her veil, and he's looking directly into her eyes, and he describes them, you know, beautiful like a dove, soft and gentle. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Let me just help you here, men. Before you use that one uh, with your wife, remember cultural differences, right? Your hair, honey, it looks like a flock of goats. (laughs) Believe it or not, this is actually a very erotic verse. In this day, when a Jewish woman was getting married, she would wear her hair up. Uh, in what was called a bridal cap. Many women still today, you know, they get their hair all done up uh, for their wedding day, and they would wear this bridal cap. So listen, what he's done here is he's taken the veil, he's lifted up, he's looking in her eyes, then he has removed her bridal cap, and her hair has fallen down over her shoulders. And that's what he's describing here. Your hair is soft, it's beautiful. Uh, Before we go on, guys, this is really important. Where does this guy start? At the top. He's not rushing into anything here. He's looking into her eyes. He is focused on her, not her body. In verse 2, he focuses on her teeth. And this is honestly my favorite part in the entire book of Song of Solomon here. (laughs) He says, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from their washing. What's he saying? Her teeth are clean. (laughs) That's good. It gets better. All of which bear twins. Her teeth are straight. And this one kills me. Not one, of, not one among them has lost her young. <laughs> She's got all of them. <laughs> She's not a hockey player, apparently. And in all seriousness, in all seriousness, why do you think we see her teeth right now? Think about it. Yes. She's not forcing something. 
She is smiling. She is enjoying this moment. This is fun. This woman is savoring this moment with her new husband. I am not forcing the text there, I don't think. For us to take away from that, that the enjoyment the woman is having right now is to show us still today that what's taking place here is a good, clean thing in God's eyes. God designed this to be good and fun. They have done their relationship right. And so their honeymoon is a celebration, right? It's not evil. It's not bad. It's it's good. It's upright. It's healthy. It's happy. You remember Solomon has twice in this book, in their dating relationship, early relationship, has said what? Do not arouse or awaken love until the time is right. And they didn't. But the time is right. The time is now right. And they are enjoying this moment together. And listen, that doesn't have to change in marriage ever, does it? Does it? She's only supposed to be fun on the first time. I will never forget one of the lasting memories I will take to my grave is when we were in Princeton, Peggy and I were in Princeton when I was at school, uh, I did an internship at a church there, and the pastor of this church was a great guy, but he was very formal. Like I, He like slept in a tie. I'm not kidding um, about this. And he spoke in this very formal way, I mean very, very like this. But every once in a while, he and his wife would take uh, us out to lunch after church, which was a big deal for us. I mean, we're poor seminary students, so they take us to these nice... Uh, restaurants, and it was fun, and we get to know them a little bit more. And one day, we are at this restaurant, and I kid you not, out of nowhere, I mean, we're eating. He says, you know, Steve, the rabbis used to teach that you should make love to your wife three times on the Sabbath. So Peggy and I um, sort of look down, and then we look up, because I'm like, i got to see what his wife's thinking right now. <laughs> I, uh, I'm not kidding you. She's, she's a little red, but she's got this smile on her face. And they're looking at each other, and they share this moment. I'm like, that's awesome. They're like in their 50s, and they're loving this. And they should. They should, right? Verse 3. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. He's brushing her lips and her temples, looking at her face. In verse 4, he moves to her neck, and she, he describes her as an upright woman. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with rows of stones. You are a woman of nobility and strength. He moves to her necklace, on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the mighty men. And now, in verse 5, actually, can we skip to 16? No? Dang. All right. In verse 5, he slips off her dress. And he looks at the body of his wife for the very first time. And he says, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Now, let me ask you, why does Solomon use this imagery right here? How many of you are hunters? Anybody hunt in this room? Yep, some of you are hunters. How do you approach two fawns, twins of a gazelle? How do you approach them, not kill them? Listen, you don't run up to two fawns, twins of a gazelle, like, yo, fawns, right? You go slow. I mean, if you want to use the bow and arrow, I don't know what that means right there, but you got to go slow. 
You got to be gentle, right? You don't go running up. Say goodbye to the fawns. You take your time. Listen, you single men, I'm going to save you some trouble. You don't come out of the bathroom on your honeymoon night like Conan the Barbarian, right? You don't know how your wife is going to feel the first time she stands naked before you. You don't know how she's going to react. You got to tiptoe in like you would trying to get closer to those gazelles before you use the bow and arrow. In verse 6, let's focus here. I don't, can we be done? Can I just pray right now? In verse 6, even though this woman wants to be treated with gentleness, he says, Until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You remember that from last week? Do you? That was her line, right? She's like, come and I want you to take a hike on the hills of Bethar. And he's like, the hills of Bethar aren't open for business yet. They're open for business, right? But notice he's changed one thing that she said. He's changed one thing she said. It's interesting. She called them the mountains of Athar. Here he calls them the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. And once again, uh, this is poetic. I mean, Solomon is like a, a genius poet. He is using the most aromatic and pleasurable spices in that day to describe this, right? They were frankincense and myrrh. The ancient Persians thought that the gods breathed frankincense and myrrh. Okay, so think about this. When the three wise men came from Persia area to Jesus, what gifts did they bring him? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold represents royalty. Why frankincense and myrrh? Because they're the most precious things they could have brought. Of course, that's what you bring a deity. That's what you bring God. And so he's looking at her, describing her breasts as the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. He compares them to the most precious things. In the world. Now, by the way, let me just stop here because this is one of the main points of this whole message today. Maybe you're getting uncomfortable right now, because I am. (laughs) But I think it's time to say something really important about this whole topic of sex. The whole Jewish mindset of this day was that God created the physical world to be enjoyed. To be enjoyed. So, for example, God created us with taste buds. Did God have to create us with taste buds? No, I mean, he could have just made it so we eat food and it tastes bland, it it nourishes us, but he created us with taste buds so that we could enjoy eating. Did God have to give us eyes to see color? No, I mean, he could have just, we could survive easily without being able to see color, right? But God created us with eyes in order to see color. He wants us to, he gave us these senses so that we can enjoy the physical world. Unfortunately, what happened is right around the time when the New Testament was actually being written, this philosophy began to spring up called Gnosticism. And the Gnostics taught that everything in the physical world was bad and evil. It was the spiritual world that really mattered. Now listen. Sadly, Gnosticism has crept into the church. It's crept into many churches, right? Where today, it's still sort of believed, well, yeah, the physical world's okay, maybe. I'm not sure. But the spiritual world, that's what really matters. But listen, when God created the world, it says in Genesis, he said, what about it? This is good. This is good. And he created man and woman to enjoy it. So for this man to be looking at his naked wife for the first time saying, it is good. Right? It is good. This is not dirty. It's not evil. This is a good, beautiful thing. There are still churches today that teach Gnosticism. You know that? Many of you grew up in a church 
that teaches Gnosticism. I know this as a fact because many of you have talked to me throughout this series. That's a sad thing. This couple is enjoying this moment, and I believe God is enjoying the fact that they are enjoying this moment. Don't you? In verse 7, Solomon just stands back. He looks at his wife and says, You are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there is no blemish in you. That falls right at the face of what our culture is telling women today. you got to look this way to be considered beautiful because you're full of blemishes. You need this product. You need this procedure. What's ironic is even the girls are putting on these magazines need airbrushes. I personally think, you can disagree with me, I personally think this is one of Satan's greatest victories in our culture right now for men and women, getting us to focus so much on outward, quote, what we think, what the world defines as physical beauty. This man's like, you are You are unblemished for me in my sight. Husbands, do your wives still know they're perfect? They're perfect. I tell my wife all the time that I find her more beautiful today than ever before, and you can give me a lie detector test on that one. Why? Because this Thursday we'll have been married 15 years together. And listen, I'm just going to tell you, if some some of you have been married longer than that, you just know, right? The more you get to know your spouse, the more deeply you become attracted to them. Because it's not just about physical, it's about doing life together. Literally, that's what it means when the two become one flesh. You do life, you raise kids, you grow spiritually, you grow emotionally. That's attraction in God's eyes, not the way the world defines it. Peter writes to women in 1 Peter 3, he says this, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's eyes. What, how does God define beauty? The heart. He always looks to the heart, right? That's where true beauty comes from. Now listen, what I'm not saying is that physical beauty is totally unimportant. And I mean, we do that, right? We go to one extreme or to the other. What I am saying, though, is Christians, we define beauty of what's happening right here. And if you're married, it should be the same. I find you more and more beautiful the more I know you. Husband, wife, because you're growing here. And that's what matters the most. That's what matters the most. By the way, this is so interesting. This verse, this tangent subject here, but this verse is actually paraphrased by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 about how Jesus Christ feels about his bride, the church. Isn't that a fascinating passage if you've ever looked at it? I mean, Paul's talking about marriage, but right in the middle of it, he goes on this little thing to describe why God sent Jesus in the first place. And he describes it this way. He says this, To make her, the church, that's us, holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, a radiant bride, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Fascinating that Paul uses marriage as a metaphor. Because of how God felt towards us, his banner over us is love. He came to present us as holy before him. Do you know when you stand before God? I mean, think about this. Just as this young girl is standing before her husband right now for the first time. 
That when you, when you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you stand before him the very first time, right? When you receive that gift, he views you as holy and blameless. Or as Solomon says, without blemish. That is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know it? Do you know that's how God, why God came? Why he gave his life up on a cross for you? Back to the text now, fellas. It's a vulnerable thing. For a woman to stand naked before her husband in a world that teaches imperfection. And this guy is just trying to let her know, listen, you're perfect for me. You are perfect. And he wants her to be secure in that. I don't care if you've been married 50 years. Husbands, do you let your wife know that's still how you feel about him? Her. Wives, do you let your husband know that's how you feel about him? In verse 8, as she stands naked, he assures her, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. Journey down from the summit of Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, where the, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. He's referring to a certain mountain range in the north of Israel. That's where the lions and the other dangerous animals would make their lairs. So if you're traveling through those mountain ranges, how would you travel through them? Carefully? Slowly? So what do you think he's saying here? I'm going to go slow. Our marital bed is not going to be scary. It's not going to be dangerous. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to abuse you. I'm not going to bring you physical pain. By the way, on the first night, did you know that a woman can experience great physical pain from sex? So he's saying, listen, we're going to go real slow. We're going to go through this dangerous place together. We're going to be safe. What's that called again? Leadership leadership, right? He's slow. He's reassuring. He's careful and gentle. Incidentally, isn't this how we know this book was inspired by God, right? I mean, if a mere man wrote this, we would have started this chapter in verse 7. God inspired this book. In verses 9 through 11, we're going to see all the senses at play, right? All the senses. God created us with senses so we could enjoy. He says in verse 9, You have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You know, he's describing her like, you're my best friend, my sister. You have made my heart beat faster with a single, what does it say? Glance of your eyes. She looks at him, right? He sees her with a single strand of your necklace. In verse 10, he smells her. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine. And the fragrance of your oils than all kinds of spices. He's smelling her. In verse 11, he touches her for the first time. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Incidentally, this is at least according to what we've read so far on this book, the first time this couple kisses. Now, this ain't no peck on the cheek kiss, is it? Honey and milk are under your tongue. What kind of kiss is he describing here? Go ahead. It's a French kiss. Now listen. France didn't become a nation until the 9th century A.D. (laughs) This was written 1,000 years at least before that. It's time the church rises up and renames this kiss. (laughs) This is a biblical kiss. Who's with me, right? Yeah. No one? In verse 12, he now comes down to the central area of this woman's body. And he speaks of it in a very interesting way. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A rock garden locked. A spring sealed up. What's he talking about here? I'm sure you can kind of figure it out, right? 
Uh, now, you may need to plug your ears because I'm going to get real technical right now. Women have a body part called the hymen. And if the hymen is broken, the woman will bleed. And what would happen during this culture is that you would know that a woman was a virgin based on whether or not on this first night in this bridal chamber she bled. Literally, it was the law, and for some of you, this is going to be like, whoa, just remember, 3,000 years ago. But it was the law, God's law, that uh, the husband was supposed to take a cloth on the first time, you know, that they come to the bridal chamber together, and he was to place it on the bed where it would collect the blood for the first time they had sex. And then the husband would present that cloth to the girl's parents so that if anybody ever accused that girl of sleeping around before they got married, Deuteronomy 22 says that the parents of the woman should produce the evidence of her virginity. What is the evidence? It's this cloth. Does God take purity seriously? Don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. God takes purity seriously. He takes it seriously. Does this book teach about passion? Yes, but it also teaches about purity. And I'm here to tell you, despite what the world says, those two things can go together. Passion and purity. Passion and purity. In verses 13 and 14, they continue touching, and he says, Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, henna with nard plants, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, along with all the finest spice. He's just like naming every spice he can think of right now. (laughs) I've never experienced anything like you. In verse 15, it gets more intense. You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water, the streams flowing from Lebanon. He's ready. He is ready for the point of intercourse. Now, notice, what senses have we had right now? We've had sight. We've had touch. We've had taste, the biblical kiss. We've had smell. What haven't we had yet? Hearing. This woman hasn't said a word. She's been standing here, but she hasn't spoken. But in verse 16, she speaks and she gives her one line in this moment. And what a line it is. She looks at her man and says, Awake, O north wind, and come, wind of the south. In Israel, the north winds were the strong winds. The southerly winds were the gentle warm winds. Think about how cool of a picture that is. She's saying, I want to be loved with strength, but also with tenderness. And here it is. Make my garden breathe out fragrance. Whoa. I love what Tommy Nelson says about this. I'm going to quote him. He says, Married women, I dare you. Some night when things are happening, you just say, Awake, north wind. Make my garden breathe. Your man will have a stroke right there. And you know what his last words will be? Thank you, Jesus. She continues, Let its spices be wafted abroad. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits, meaning I'm ready to. I'm ready to. Let's consummate this marriage. Let's seal this marriage by coming together. By coming together. But here's what I love about this book. We don't get to see what happens next. Right? This is not pornography. It's like God is about to close the curtain on this bridal chamber, and he says, this is private. This is for Solomon and his bride. He puts the do not disturb sign and everything on it, right? This is a private moment that they now share together. We know that because the very first verse in chapter 5 is in the past tense. Just listen to this man. 
I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. Is he kind of excited? What word do you see nine times in that verse? Look at it again. What word do you see nine times? My. They have become one. For this reason, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Don't ever kid yourself about sex. It is a powerful thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he that joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her. Sex is meant to have enormous implications to becoming one. That's why we are to wait for marriage. It is the seal of a covenant. It is when the two become one. Okay? You know what I find interesting is at the end of verse 1 here, which we didn't read in chapter 5, I believe this is the one place in the book where God actually speaks. It's different than what just went before it enough. This is the reason I believe this, right? Solomon is speaking in first person, but all of a sudden, there's this other voice that comes into the picture, and it's speaking to this couple right now. I may be wrong about it. It's how I read it. I think I'm right. And if, it's, if I'm right, here's what God says. He says to them, eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers. Meaning, I created this for you. You know, you bring wedding gifts to a wedding today, you know. He's like, here's my gift to you. Here's my gift to you. You don't just have to sip at sexuality as if it's a shameful thing, as if it should only be used for the reproduction of the human race. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Solomon said in the book of Proverbs, be intoxicated with the wife of your youth. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. He's got a thing with breasts. The bigger picture is you can be intoxicated with your spouse, whether you've been married for 10, 20, 40, 60 years. I don't care. God created it. He said it is good. Drink deeply. Imbibe. Enjoy. Enjoy. I've heard of couples, true story, who have never seen each other naked. That's what they've been taught. Right? They were raised in churches that taught Gnosticism, not the Bible. Not the Bible. Sex is meant for the reproduction of the human race. That's it. That's it. I, I, I would say to that, we can depart from the word of God to the left, which our world has done, but we can also depart from the word of God to the right, can't we? You know what I mean by that? We can make the Bible say things it doesn't actually say, but it just sounds right. And we've made the Bible say things about sex it doesn't actually say. It doesn't actually teach Drink deeply, friends. I mean, when you do it right, when you do it this way, drink deeply. This is my gift to you. Enjoy this gift. So this morning as we wrap this up, I want to offer six principles for great sex in a Christian marriage. How do you learn to enjoy it? And I am going to say three things right up front about this. This is the part that makes me the most nervous today. The first uh, reason for that is because I'm going to be speaking somewhat generally here about the differences between men and women. And I know some people can get offended by that, uh, right? And some of you might sit and go, well, this doesn't describe me. Uh, it doesn't describe her. It doesn't describe you. I understand that. But we have to speak some sort of a common language. And so I'm just going to ask you to 
be willing to laugh a little bit about the differences between men and women. Second thing uh, I just want to say is in an ideal world, you know what I wish we could do right now? That we could separate this room. I could send all the women out into another room right now and have a woman speak to you about this because it's just weird being a man standing up here talking about it. Not only is it weird, though, I I think it can just, I'm not going to understand things that another woman would. So I'll just ask you to just give me grace uh, in that, okay? And then the third thing I want to just say is, obviously, one thing we can't talk about is how Satan has taken this and twisted it and made it into an evil thing, and many of you have experienced the result of that evil. I acknowledge that. We hope you understand, even through this series, that God can take all those things and redeem them and restore them. That's how great his love is, but I can't get into that, okay? So those are the three things I just want to say. So here are six principles for great sex in a Christian marriage. Number one, you need to understand the difference between men and women. You need to understand the difference between men and women. Are there differences between men and women in this area? Here is a great illustration. 